0: Well, hey, what is up, Cal Church? Uh, if we've never met before, my name is Taylor Hunt, and I work uh, at Mission Church with my wife, Daly. We live over in Oxnard. Um, and man, I'm just grateful to, to be here with you guys today as Pastor Brad is gone. Um, but don't worry, Brad is gonna be back next week. Uh, you know, I feel like I'm kind of like the stray dog of Cal Church. You know, you scratched my belly once, scratched my ear, gave me a little bit of food to eat, and man, now you just can't get rid of me <laughs> because I just get to come around from time to time whenever Brad is out um, and get to hang out with you guys. And so I'm so excited to get to be back here because I love, man, that Cal Church is a place for anyone and everyone, for mutts and strays, for purebreds, uh, for soccer moms and single dads, for the burnt out, the broken, the OGs, the wannabes, man, for anybody and everybody to hear about the hope that we have in Jesus. Uh, And if you ever had one of those, uh, didn't see it coming moments um, in your life, you know, maybe uh, you were reading a book that you just loved and then all of a sudden there was this big plot twist and you're like, oh my gosh. I never saw that coming. Uh, maybe one of your favorite movies or TV shows had a character that you just love, then all of a sudden they wrote him off or killed him off. And you're like, oh my goodness, I never saw it coming. Um, I'll never forget whenever I was a sophomore in college, I had my very own never saw it coming moment. Whenever I was in the finals of a campus-wide dodgeball tournament uh, that had been going on, and I don't want to brag, but I mean, my team was in the finals. So, you know, we were doing pretty good. And we were playing against a friend of mine named Connor's team. And about halfway through the game, Connor had already gotten out. So he was sitting over with all of the losers um, on the sidelines. Whenever a ball was rolling from his side of the court onto my side of the court, and right as it was about to cross the line, Connor gets up from the bench, runs over, grabs the ball, throws it back to his teammates, and then just shuffles back, giving me the finger guns. And... Now this was like, you know, a no big deal dodgeball tournament. It didn't really mean anything or matter, but man, on the inside, I was furious. Like I was an inferno of rage because he cheated, and I wanted to win. And so I devised in my mind a plan of how I was going to get Connor back. And so the next time I got a ball, I was going to run towards the middle line. I was going to be looking forward, like I was going to throw the ball at somebody else. Then, right at the last second, I would turn, throw the ball through the air, and hit Connor in his smug little face. And then I'd give him the finger guns and just go back to my spot. And so, sure enough, a couple minutes. Later, I get a ball in my hand. So I dash towards the middle line. I turn right at the last second. I throw that ball right at Connor's goofy little grin, and that ball is soaring right towards his face. When right at the last moment, it goes up, 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 right over Connor's head and into the bleachers. And then to my horror, I see that somebody in the stands leans forward and a girl with long hair pulls her hands down and then I realize that at a campus-wide dodgeball tournament in front of 800 of my peers, I had just purposefully thrown a ball into the bleachers and I had smoked my ex-girlfriend in the face with a dodgeball. And let me tell you, I never saw that awkward apology coming, all right? There is no better way to get on the blacklist than to do what I did. Uh, That was the most awkward moment of my life that I never saw coming. And maybe you've had one of those uh, never saw it coming moments before when you were turning out onto a busy road in traffic and you know you got into a little fender bender and you're like, oh, I never saw it coming. Uh, Do we have any college basketball fans? If you're a college basketball fan, go ahead and type the team that you root for uh, in the chat. But if you watched March Madness this last year, you probably never saw the final four coming um, because only six people out of the millions of March Madness brackets that are submitted every year, but this year specifically, only six Six people out of the millions that submitted brackets actually predicted the final four, which is crazy. You know, a couple weeks ago, I read a real story from a newspaper in Arizona uh, that said, Arizona psychic hit by car says that he never saw it coming. Um, And I know that there is no such thing as bad press. But if your job is seeing the future, then that just seems like some bad press. Uh, And man, we've all had some of those never-saw-it-coming moments. And man, some of them, they made us laugh. Some of us, you know, they cost us a little bit of money. Some of us, those moments cost us our reputation. Uh, But man, we've all had some never-seen-it-coming moments that cost us a whole lot more. You know, maybe you had one of those never-saw-it-coming moments that left you just feeling isolated and alone. You know, maybe you were betrayed by a close friend or a loved one. You know, maybe when your mom walked out, when your dad walked out, when your spouse walked out, you just felt so alone in brokenness. You know, maybe for some of us growing up in a home full of yelling, fighting, and manipulation, it just left us feeling broken and battered and we never saw it coming. You know, for some of us, that addiction that we keep running to, that anger that keeps blowing up our life, that secret thing, that secret habit, that secret coping mechanism that we keep trying to use to numb out the pain that we want to hide from everybody. Man, if we're honest, that secret sin, it felt so good at first and brought us some relief, but man, now it just feels like shackles. I mean, we never thought we'd be here. We never thought we'd hit rock bottom. Man, we never saw it coming. You know, for some of us, our never-saw-it-coming moment looked like a diagnosis, an illness, an unwanted trip to the ER. You know, we heard words like cancer, Parkinson's, Crohn's. We live with this debilitating disease, this chronic pain every single day. Or man, maybe for some of us, our never-saw-it-coming moment ended with this. Hey man, you still can't believe they're gone. You still find yourself wanting to call them or text them. Man, maybe it's been months since the funeral, but we are still in the midst of our grief. And man, those waves of anger and frustration, of sadness, man, we just never saw it coming. And about 2,000 years ago, on the darkest day in history, a small group of people witnessed a moment that they never saw coming. See, Jesus' followers fled, the movement stopped moving, and the holy rebellion was shut down in one final swoop because Jesus dying man, was something that they never saw coming. And so today, what we're going to do in our time together is we are going to ask ourselves this question. Why did Jesus have to die? I mean, wasn't there any other way? I mean, did Jesus see this coming? Did anybody else see this coming? I mean, Jesus, if he is God in the flesh, why did he have to die this brutal, barbaric death on the cross? I mean, wasn't there any other way? Why did Jesus have to die? And see, maybe, just maybe, Jesus had to die because the Old Testament foreshadowed it. And you know, I've got a daughter that is about two years old, and man, she is just the best. You know, whenever I get home from a long day at work, she walks up to me and is like, hug. And so I pick her up, give her a big hug. We walk around her house for five to ten minutes, and then eventually she'll push back from me, kind of look me up and down, and she'll go, body slam. And just that's how we roll at my house, all right? She just wants a hug and a body slam. And so she is tough and tender, and it is great. Uh, But man, we were walking around downtown Ventura a couple weeks ago, and for the— one of the first times she saw her shadow and realized that her shadow was this thing that represented her, but it wasn't her. It pointed towards something bigger than itself. You know, if you ever go camping, man, you know that the best time is golden hour. Whenever those trees, their long shadows start to point towards the sunset that is about to ensue. You know, if you've ever been walking um, at night one time and you saw, you know, a dark shadowy figure, you saw a shadow down an alley, uh, you know that that maybe was pointing to some danger that was looming ahead. Man, the Old Testament is actually full of all of these things called shadows that point to a story so much bigger than themselves. See, one of the opening scenes of the Bible is that of a tree in the midst of a garden, which was a total paradise that God created for Adam and Eve. And after living in a total paradise for just a few moments, Adam and Eve sin under the tree, the curse breaks loose, and paradise is lost. Hey Amen. wouldn't you know? That in the middle of the Bible, we find ourselves in another garden scene on the night before Jesus died. Thousands of years after the fall in the garden, a few moments after Jesus' time in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would later be hung on a tree, the curse would be broken, and paradise was redeemed. See, it was just a shadow. Something so much better to come. You know, back in the Old Testament, um, after Adam, we meet this really old guy named Abraham. And God tells Abraham and his wife Sarah that they are going to have a child and that from their descendants would become, man, this great nation of Israel. And their descendants would outnumber the sand on the shore of all the seas in all the world. And Abraham and Sarah, they actually start cracking up because they are in their 90s when God tells them this. And they should be like wearing diapers, not changing diapers, all right? But sure enough, just like God says... They have a son named Isaac, which means son of my laughter because it cracked them up. And one day God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to take your one and only son, your son Isaac, who you love so much, and I want you to sacrifice him to me which is pretty shocking for us today. I mean, we're not really uh, big fans of child sacrifice. But in Abraham's day, this was not unusual for God to ask for this kind of sacrifice. So Abraham loads up his son. It says that he placed the wood for the sacrifice on the shoulders of his son and together they climb up out Mount Moriah and right as Abraham is about to take the knife and sacrifice his son, God stops him and says, don't lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you really fear God because you would not withhold your one and only son. And then God Provides a ram as a substitute for the sacrifice on Abraham's behalf. And man, wouldn't you know that that was just a shadow? of the moment in history when after a bogus trial, after being flogged and whipped, God's one and only son would have a wooden beam loaded on his shoulders. He would climb up a hill called Golgotha, which many think that this hill, Golgotha, was the same exact site of Mount Moriah, the same exact mountain that Abraham climbed up. But now Jesus climbs up this same exact spot where God forbid Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, and this time God provided his son as the substitute for the sacrifice on our behalf. And man, it was just a shadow of something so much better to come. In five or 600 years after Isaac's uh, wonderful camping trip with his dad, uh, he's going to need some therapy after that. Man, just like God promised, their descendants have been made into a great nation, the nation of Israel, but here's the problem. The Israelites are now slaves in Egypt and are subject to oppression and brutal conditions. And in the Exodus story, God comes to a guy named Moses and says, Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. And Moses was just a shadow of another deliverer that was to come. And God tells Moses, Moses, I love my people. I've seen their trouble. I've heard their cries, and I'm going to deliver them through you. Now go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way, eh, Jose. And then this big epic battle between God and Pharaoh begins. And God sends plagues of frogs and locusts on the Egyptians. And the worst of these plagues was the plague of death. And God instructs the Israelites that if they would kill a lamb and spread its, lo- uh, its blood over the doorpost of their house, that whenever the angel of death came in, it would actually pass over the doorposts that were marked out with the blood of the lamb, which is a big time shadow because the night before Jesus was crucified, he sits down at a Passover meal to celebrate this moment in history with his buddies. He takes some bread and wine and he says, I am the Passover lamb. And you might remember in the Exodus story how after the angel of death, Pharaoh finally tells Moses, all right, you get your people and just get the heck out of here and don't you ever come back. And so as Pharaoh watches his free labor force leave the country and wander off into the desert, he has a change of heart. He goes after them, tries to capture them again, but God actually leads Moses and the people of Israel. He leads them through the Red Sea. He parts the waters and they make it to the other side. And then as Egypt, their past and their pursuers are coming after them, God actually, actually uses those waters to bury, to defeat, to kill their past and their pursuers that were coming after them. And man, that was just a shadow because so many of us have had the exact same thing through the waters of baptism, where our past, our captors, our pursuers, man, they were put right there dead in the water because our deliverer was also our sacrificial lamb. And man, that is why Jesus had to die because the Old Testament foreshadowed it. Those shadows were something of a shadow of something so much better to come. And the good news is it, did come. He did come. See, when Jesus died on the cross, the curse was reversed. The garden was restored because God made the sacrifice that he wouldn't ask anyone else to make. On a hill called Golgotha, the site of our exodus, God provided a substitute sacrifice through the one true deliverer, the Passover lamb. And now our past and our pursuers, they do not have any power over us anymore. Man, that is our story. That is why Jesus had to die. But man, the great thing about this story is that this story doesn't stop there. Man, it is so much better than that. See, not only did the Old Testament foreshadow it, uh, but the prophets actually predicted it. See, for almost 2,000 years, Israel, God's chosen people, had to be searching for a Savior. I mean, they had been looking anywhere and everywhere for some place to put their hope. And see, after the Exodus, the story of the Israelites can basically be summarized in two words, rebellion and captivity. Rebellion and captivity. Because they would constantly rebel against God's ways, and then they'd fall into captivity from a surrounding nation. Rebel, captivity. It was this terrible cycle that they were constantly stuck in. And eventually they'd be free, but not after long, they'd go right back into captivity, rebel, captivity, rebel, captivity. So they had been looking, they had been searching for someone to come deliver them from the hands of their enemies. Man, they had been looking for the promised one that was to come and rescue and save and redeem. Amen. these predictions, these prophecies, they gave signs to look for when God's promised person was coming near. And there are actually over 300 prophecies in the Bible concerning the coming of the one that they were looking for. Over 300 prophecies about aspects of his life and death. And it was predicted hundreds, if not thousands of years, before Jesus ever walked the earth, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that his clothes would be gambled away, that his hands and feet would be pierced, that his bones would not be broken and that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's grave. And man, those are just a few of the hundreds of prophecies about Jesus. And you know, a a professor uh, at Westmont College in Santa Barbara actually wanted to calculate the probability of one man fulfilling the major prophecies concerning the Messiah. So with the help of over 600 university students, he created a system to assign a numerical probability to each one of the prophecies about Jesus. And so after examining only eight of these different prophecies, they conservatively estimate that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight of these prophecies is 1 times 10 to the 17th, which is a number so big that I don't even know how to say it. I mean, that would be like filling the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, marking one of those silver dollars with an X, throwing it into the middle of the state, then having bulldozers mix all of those silver dollars all around, then going to one of your buddies, handing him a blindfold and saying, good luck, (laughs) you got one shot to pick the one that's marked. I mean, what would be the odds that he gets it right? Nothing. And yet that was the odds of only eight of the prophecies being fulfilled. But Jesus fulfilled over 300. I mean, the figuring the odds of fulfilling all 300, it is simply incalculable. Except man, the author of those prophecies knew the future and he knew the kind of Savior that we really needed. In Isaiah 53, it says, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. And unjustly condemned, he was led away. And man, our story is not so much different than theirs. See, a lot of us, we have found ourselves turning our back on God time and time again. Rebel, captivity, rebel, captivity. We are stuck in the same cycle and we have been searching for a way out. We have been searching for freedom. We have been searching for hope. We have been searching for a savior, a place to go, a place to grow. We have been searching high and low. But man, what we need to know is Jesus is who we've been searching for. See, he is the one that sets us free. He is the one true savior. He is the one worth putting our hope in. He is the long awaited Messiah. And when he died on the cross, like the prophets predicted, his rescue mission was fulfilled. The lamb of God defied incalculable odds because the Author and perfecter of our faith. He holds time in his hand, and when he died on the cross, the search for a Savior was over. History was fulfilled, hope was revealed because the Savior went out to search for us. Man, that is why Jesus had to die because he was searching for you and he was searching for me. And man, that's our story. But the great part about this story is this story is so much better than just that. See, Jesus not only died because the Old Testament foreshadowed it. He not only died because the prophets predicted it, but he died because our sin demanded it. And so he had to atone for our sin. And you know, that word atone isn't really a word that we use a lot. You know, we're not like, I'm going to go do some atoning this weekend or like, man, I'm so mad that guy atoned me. Like we don't ever use that word, but it's actually two English words that mean at one mint, And it means that there is a state of togetherness, an agreement of one between two people or two parties. That two people who were estranged have now been brought together in a right relationship. You know, I heard a story one time uh, about a preschool Sunday teacher, Sunday school teacher, who had a Bible in her class. She held it up in front of her kids and she said, okay, boys and girls, what is this? And one of the kids raised their hands and said, it's a Bible. And the teacher said, yes, it's a Bible. And the Bible is wonderful. And then the teacher asked the kids, okay, now who can tell me what the Bible is about? And the kid raised his hand and said, Jesus. And the teacher said, yes, and Jesus is wonderful. And I'm just saying, if your Sunday school teacher talks like that, you need to get out. Um, now, then the teacher asked, now, why did Jesus die for you? And a kid said, uh, to take away our sins. And the teacher said, yes. And that is wonderful. And then the teacher asked, now, what is sin? And the kids got really quiet for a couple minutes. And one of the girls on the front row raised her hand. And she said, teacher, I don't know what sin is, but I bet that it is wonderful. Um, and I'm just saying, I imagine that car ride home, the parents are like, what did you learn at church today? That sin is wonderful. But man, so many of us know the truth that sin is anything but wonderful. You know, most of the times we think that sin is a list of fun things that God doesn't want us to do, but man, that could not be further from the truth. See, sin is often described as a form of tyranny or bondage in the Bible. It's something that traps or entangles its victim. It creates barriers between God and man and between man and each other. It is a form of slavery that is costly and unsightly, and it always requires a payment, and sin always goes hand in hand with death. Man, so many of us know just how true that really is because we know how sin led to the death of our marriage, led to the death of our relationship with our son, led to the death of our relationship with our daughter. Man, we know how sin led to the death of our business, to the death of our trust. Man, if we are honest with ourselves, I think we all know that sin is just a shackle and it is slowly squeezing the life out of us. And ever since the original sin in the garden, we've all got a sin problem. And so in the story of God's people, not long after sin enters the picture is when God gave Moses the law, these commandments that were supposed to help the people who had just been freed from 400 years of slavery. See, they were free from the Egyptians. They were free from Egypt, but Egypt was still in them. They didn't know how to live free, even though they were free. And so God gave them these laws, these helpful commands. And you might know the big 10, the big 10 commandments, but there were actually 613 laws and sacrifices that God gave his people. They were rituals that they had to perform perfectly to compensate for their sin because sin and sacrifice go hand in hand. In Romans 5, it says God's law was given so that all people could see just how sinful they were. And in Jesus' day, there was a group of religious people called Pharisees. And they were these super religious Jews who actually thought that if they could follow the law perfectly, that God's kingdom would come earlier. They thought they're falling short of the law. uh, And any Jew who didn't take the law perfectly would actually keep God at bay. And so a former Pharisee turned Christian named Paul would later write, and I love the Phillips translation of the Bible. It says this in Romans 3.20. It says no man can justify himself before God by a perfect performance of the law's demands. Indeed, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us just how crooked we are. You know, in Hebrews 10, it says the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again year after year because sin always demands sacrifice. But they were never able to provide the perfect cleansing to those who came to worship. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. See man, when Jesus died, he paid our debt. See, our sin demanded a price. It demanded a perfect sacrifice, and God provided that in his one and only son. See, in the Bible, God's wrath is his righteous response to sin, and he hates sin, and rightly so. But his wrath is also an expression of his perfect holy nature to show how serious he takes the sin and the moral depravity around our world. Man, people destroy each other's lives by sin, and God is not okay with that. And yet God is also the one who provides the sacrifice, the propitiation, the appeasement for his wrath that we need. See, in 2 Corinthians, it says, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. See, what God requires, a sacrifice, he also provides. And he is, by his own choice and for our sake, priest and sacrifice, mediator and gift. You know, in a 2019 commencement speaker uh, at Morehouse College in Atlanta, he stunned the graduating class by announcing at the end of his graduation speech that he was actually going to pay off the debt of every single college graduate that was there that day. An amount of upwards of $40 million. And I mean, the place erupted. These college students who thought they were graduating with, you know, a mountain of debt, they were freaking out. They were throwing their hats. They were crying. They were screaming. They were yelling. They were calling their mamas and their grandmamas. They were throwing chairs. They were doing everything everything because their debt had been paid. Man, you know, we hear that story uh, and we don't have quite the same reaction. Why? Well, some of us, we still got student loans, all right? Like, we thought Biden was going to take care of those, but I guess not. You know, it was not our debt that was paid. But man, here's the good news. In Jesus, our debt has been paid once and for all. See, when Jesus died, man, God was coming for us. And there is now no separation, no temple needed, no high priest needed, no mediator needed, no intercession needed, no intercessor needed except for one. And man, he came to get us. He came to pay off our debt. He came to make our payment. He came to buy us back. He came to appease his own wrath. But man, the great part of this story, that is our story, is that it is so much better than that. See, when Jesus died, he not only paid our debt, but man, he defeated our enemy death. See, the stats are pretty clear on this. Uh, one out of every one humans will die. You know, the score but of humanity reads death, 100 billion, humanity, Zero. But in Romans 5, it says this, For the sin of this one man, Adam, God chose, or Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through the one man, Jesus Christ. See, three days. After Jesus was laying lifeless, stone-cold dead in a dark tomb. Three days after his friends and followers have deserted him. Three days after they have been scattered and tattered and battered. Man, nobody expected him to die. Three days after the darkest day in their life, hope was gone. The movement stopped moving and they had failed. Death had won. But three days later, as the sun began to rise on the third morning, Darkness had settled over the land when suddenly on the, on the first rays of sunlight, a whisper came that said, arise my son. And suddenly that dead heart started beating. That lifeless body started to have blood course through its vein. Man, oxygen began to fill his lungs. His fingers started to twitch and Jesus, the dead man, rose to life. You know, I heard one old preacher say that every grave has tracks going into it. But only one grave has tracks going out. See, no one saw this coming. No one expected this to happen. Suddenly, where there was no hope, now there was hope. Where there was only pain, now there was peace. Where there was fear, now there was comfort. Death was defeated, hell was depleted. Jesus is alive. Amen. That is why he had to die. Amen. For the first time in all of history, the scoreboard of humanity read Death 100 billion, humanity won. Hey Amen. One day that score too will change. You know, in the book of Revelation, John writes of that day when he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people and he will live with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All these things are gone forever. And man, what's so cool is whenever you read the book of Revelation, what you see is that this city is actually a garden city. And man, it's just a shadow of what is to come. See, in God's new kingdom, there will be no more broken homes. There will be no more isolation. There will be no more abusive dads. There will be no more yelling matches. No more trauma. No more pain. No more hitting. No more hurting. There will be no more addiction. There will be no more critical thoughts, no more shameful days, no more sleepless nights, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more thoughts of self-harm. There will be no more calories. There will be no more carbs. There will be no more love handles. Man, there will be no more sickness, no more cancer no more strokes, no more chronic pain, no more Parkinson's, no more painful days, no more sleepless nights. There will be no more bulimia, no more anorexia, no more chemo, no more ER visits, no more broken bones, no more diseases. There will be no more funerals, no more tiny caskets, no more miscarriages, no more infertility, no more widows, no more school shootings. There will be no more obituaries, no more graveside services, no more tombstones. There will be no more death. See, because of the cross, man, Satan's greatest weapon, sin's companion, death is defeated, and no one saw this coming. Jesus was victorious, and now he is the keys of death in Hades, and he is the only person that can put death in a chokehold. See, his death made our future secure. Amen. that is our story. And while we still grieve on this side of eternity, man, we do not grieve like those who have no hope, because one day there will be no more Kleenex, no more mourning, No more grieving because death has been defeated. And man, that is why Jesus had to die. So that you and I could live. So that our future could be secure. Man, that is our story. But man, here's the good news. Is the story is so much better than that. See, there's this story that takes place uh, right after Jesus rose from the dead. And it's always confused me a little bit. It's in John chapter 20. Jesus is no longer in the tomb. He has risen from the dead. Death is defeated. But his dear friend Mary is at the tomb weeping. She doesn't know that Jesus has risen. When it says that she turned to leave and she saw someone standing there and it was Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? He asked her. Who are you looking for? And she thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and I will get him. And Mary, Jesus said, and she turned to him and cried out, Rabbani, and man, I love that in this story, Mary doesn't recognize Jesus. She doesn't recognize her risen Savior and Lord until he calls her name. See, Jesus didn't die just to get you. Man, he died to call you. See, Jesus came to call our name. From the very day that he defeated sin and death, he has not stopped calling people back to him. You know, just a few days later at breakfast with his friends, Jesus would say, Peter, do you love me? And he would call him back to him. In the book of Acts, Jesus would meet a guy on a road named Saul and he would say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he would call Saul back to him. And man, he hasn't stopped doing that through all of history. You know, when he broke sin and death, man, his power transcends time and history. You know, William Wilberforce, C.S. Lewis, Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, my great-great-grandfather, William Epa Fielding. There is no person, no place, no time that his spirit cannot reach. When he calls your name, man, people come back to him. John Calvin, John Wesley, John Mark. Man, I think at how a camp in Colorado almost 20 years ago under a heavenly host of stars, Jesus called this punk, red-headed kid back to him when he said Taylor. See, there is no place that we can go where his call can't reach. See, when the tomb broke free, he came to call you and me through all space and time. He came to call our name without shame or blame, and he has been doing it all through history. And when he came, when he died, man, he came to call you. And man, I've been praying that some of us would hear God calling our name today. And whether for the first time or the first time in a long time, he wants to call us back to him. See, whether we've ran, whether we've never heard, whether we're lost and we haven't been found, whether we're found but really we're lost, man, he came to call our name. So Abigail, Adrina, Alex, Alexis, Amanda, Amy, Andy, Angelo, Armando, Barbara, Barrett, Bill, Bob, Brent, Brad, Bryce, man, Jesus came to pay your price. Carlos, Chase, Christy, Corey, Dan, Danny, Darlene, Deborah, Donna, Doug, Dwight, Ed, Elias, Emily, Emma, Freeland, Gabriel, Gavin, Grayson, he came to secure your future. Hayden, Haley, Harley, Hayes, Heather, Hinley, Hudson, Eileen, Isabel, Izzy, Jaden, Jake, Jason, Javier, Jaden, Jose, Jesse, Jesus is your deliverer. John, Jordan, Joseph, Josh, Juan, Alyssa, Kai, Kalen, Caleb, Camilla, Kinsley, Kirby, Crystal, Kira. Man, Jesus is your substitute. Lance, Landon, Lee, Linda, Levi, Lucy, Liz, uh, Lisa, Liliana, Liz, Marcus, Michaela, Malachi, Mike, Mia, Michaela, Nick, Noah. Jesus wants to call your name. Olivia, Rachel, Raylan, Robert, Serena, Shane, Sonia. Timothy, Tony, Tyler, Veronica. Jesus came to call you back to him. See, why did Jesus have to die? Well, the Old Testament foreshadowed it. The prophets predicted it. He paid our debt. He atoned for our sin. He secured our future when he defeated death. But man, he came to call us back to him. And man, it doesn't get much better than that. Would you pray with me? Uh, God, we just thank you. man. God, we thank you that you are a God who rescues and saves and redeems. man. God, we thank you that you have moved throughout all of history. You have moved throughout all of time. That you have defeated death. You have defeated sin. Just so that way you could call us back to you. And so God, I know for so many of us, oh man, God, maybe it's been a long time since we've heard you call us home. Maybe it's been a long time that we've even, you know, logged in or checked out a video like this that we've decided to show up to church or be a part of a church. And so God, would you just help us to hear you calling our name and calling us back to you today without shame or blame? Man, God, I know for so many of us, you know, we've been around, we've been found, but God, we're really lost on the inside. And so God, would you remind us today? Would you redeem us? Would you remind us that your grace is sufficient to conquer anything inside of us? That, God, we can face our sin head on because you already took the payment for it. That, God, we can do the hard inner work. We can show up to the meeting. We can go to counseling. We can say we're sorry. We can admit we're wrong because you already took the payment. And so we can face the pain. And so, God, would you just continue to lead us? Would you continue to guide us? And God, would you just continue to be the God that rescues and saves? And man, God, we thank you so much for Jesus and how you made a way when there was no way through his sacrifice on the cross. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.